The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, like the rest of the art world, the market has been upended by the pandemic. But has the turmoil forced it to be any more transparent? Do we know any more about the actual price of art? I'm joined by Georgina Adam to discuss transparency in the market and following on from last week's deaccessioning podcast to react to the news that the Baltimore Museum of Art withdrew the three works it was planning to sell this week at Sotheby's at the last moment. Also this week, I talked to David Blaney-Brown, the curator of Turner's Modern World, a new show at Tate Britain in London. And in this episode's Work of the Week, the artist John Stezica talks about a grisaille painting by Peter Bruegel the Elder, currently at the National Gallery in London. Before all that, a reminder that we've launched a book club at the art newspaper with news, excerpts, interviews, live events and more. You can sign up to the monthly book club newsletter and indeed all of our newsletters at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the newsletter link at the top right of the page. Now, as we've discussed on this podcast before, the art market has moved increasingly online during the pandemic, and one advantage about the online viewing rooms, or OVRs, is that the prices of the works are often visible. So has the pandemic forced the art market to become more transparent? Georgina Adam, an editor-at-large at the art newspaper, gave us her thoughts. But first, we couldn't ignore some dramatic events in the auction room this week. Georgina, we're going to talk about the broader issue of transparency in the art market in a bit, but... First, we have to address the news that's come overnight. We're talking on Thursday morning in the UK. And last night there was supposed to be an auction which featured the Baltimore Museum of Artworks that we discussed at length on last week's podcast. Now, I'm going to start by filling in some of the stuff because a lot's actually happened since last week. So first off, two former board chairmen from the Baltimore Museum of Art have said that they were withdrawing pledges to to effectively give 50 million dollars to the institution the bma slightly disputed that claim that, that that these were pledges that were on the books as it were but still that's a significant development and then probably even more significant news was that two artists adam pendleton and amy sherald resigned from the board of trustees and that's a particular blow i think because Chris Bedford on last week's podcast mentioned Amy Sherald as a kind of key supporter in his aim. So that would have been a really significant knock to that sort of consistent vision that he had that this was for this progressive aim. Now, the biggest news of all happened on Wednesday. Georgina, fill us in on what happened. Yes, this was really a dramatic 12th hour uh, withdrawal that having defended uh, this decision to sell these three works of art, all of a sudden, really, really at the last minute, they were withdrawn from Sotheby's sale. So just to remind you, the two works that were going to go up for auction last night in New York was Bryce Martin's Three, which was in a 1987 work, 87-88. It was set to sell between 10 and $15 million. And then um, Clifford Still's uh, 1957G, which was set to sell between 12 and $18 million, and both were withdrawn, as indeed was the Warhol, uh, The Last Supper, which was expected to sell in a private sale for about $40 million, according to press reports. So 
obviously this is a blow for Chris Bedford and and the the people that are running the BMA, but it's also a blow for Sotheby's, isn't it? Yes, I mean absolutely. It's 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 tough because for a start, their overall sale is weakened because these were really prestigious lots. They were right at the beginning as well, and so we expected them to do well, and that sort of lifts the whole sale because that instills confidence that things are selling well. Confidence is really important in the art market, even if it's only online and you're not sitting in a sale room. Right. So so one thing I'm not clear on is what kind of arrangements would have been made between the museum and the auction house in terms of like for instance would the BMA have paid fees already to Sotheby's in order to set up the sale to go through all this the admin that would have had to have taken place up to this point? Well, of course, this is really the topic of our conversation today is the confidentiality. Um, We're going to go into that in more depth in a minute. And the answer is... We don't know. We have no idea exactly what the um, what the arrangements were. In the case of these high profile, high value lots, generally there are not the the vendor doesn't pay anything, and the auction house, in this case Sotheby's, would make its um, make its money from the buyer's fees. Uh, they very often have guarantees, in which case they're sure to sell it. Uh, and there again. Do we know what the uh, arrangements are? Absolutely not. And I assume, but I don't know, that some sort of a non-disclosure agreement was probably signed. So there's no way you can find out. And as you can imagine, Sotheby's are not about to tell us either. So what? how much would the buyer's premium be in ordinary circumstances? Well, it's on a sliding scale. They've actually just, they've just put it up. They've been putting it up quite regularly. And now the sliding scale is between 14.7%, 14.9%, and it goes right up to 26%. So what happens is that on the first 400,000, it's so much. And then as you move up, the amount drops. Um, but it's a substantial whack, um, even even uh, for very high, highly priced works of art. So that's why when we, in the art newspaper, when we report the price that, that something's gone for, we say it hammered at a certain price, but the full price was slightly larger because of these fees, right? Absolutely. And it's always quite tricky because when the pre-sale estimates are given, they're given without premium because obviously they don't know how much it's going to make. But then, of course, when the auction houses report the final result, they stick on that premium. And so it actually makes it look better than it really is. Let's talk about the rest of the sale then. So they've had this sort of disaster at the start of the sale, yes. with these two major works that are, that are not going to come to the block. How did the rest of the sale go? There were two sales. Uh, they were back to back. So one was post-war and contemporary and then followed immediately by an impressionist and modern sale. And together they made $238.7 million. Um, uh, it actually... Uh, sounds good. It's obviously a lot down on what the equivalent sales would have made last year, probably 30% off. And uh, overall, the sale uh, went to approximately low estimate. So it made approximately what the sale was, you know, the the lower estimate. They had a very good sale with sell-through rate, but then there were three lots withdrawn at the very beginning, which means that generally, apart from obviously the ones that were withdrawn um, uh, from Baltimore, uh, which obviously means possibly there was not interest in them. The sell-through rate was very good. 
uh, and indeed the Impressionist and Modern Art auction um, was what they call a gla- white glove sale. So um, everything sold. Like the Christie's sale earlier this month, some of the notable lots weren't art, right? So in this case, it was cars. In the Christie's sale, it was dinosaurs. Absolutely. I mean, it's terribly interesting, this inclusion of works of art uh, that are not works of art, like cars, dinosaurs. Um, what else? We've had We've had a car before as well. Um, it seems to be the evolution of auction is towards selling high-value goods, uh, whether they be art or not. And I think probably the online format has also, to an extent, um, amplified that trend. Um, we've also seen more sort of streetwear things like Nike sneakers selling at auction. So I guess what's happening is that anything that's quite difficult to evaluate uh, because it's it's a unique object that the auction format seems to be the suitable format for it but it is surprising because of course well those who love cars would argue that these are are, are art um, they're just beautiful cars and they didn't actually do that well they made low estimate these Alfa Romeos okay but many millions of pounds nonetheless yeah they made 14 million dollars but the the estimate was up to I think eighteen million dollars. So it, it yes, they did well. Gosh. Um, let's talk about um, the work that was probably sold for the most amount of money this week, but we don't know because it's been sold by sealed bid. So firstly, tell me about the work itself. This is this was a really sensational lot that they had. It wasn't in the auction, um, and it's a Giacometti. It's a tall standing woman, uh, grande femme de boue, and was initially conceived for the Chase Manhattan Plaza that never actually happened, that never, that wasn't, wasn't ever completed. Um, but the interesting thing about this work is that it's a, B, it was sold by a sealed bid auction process, which meant that potential buyers had to send in a sealed bid and then when they at at the end of the auction which happened on last Tuesday uh, those bids were um, revealed and the highest bidder got it. The consigner was uh, Ronald Perlman according to many press reports he hasn't confirmed it but I think we can rely on those reports Um, who is um, he's a billionaire but he seems to have been liquidating a lot of his art Um, his uh, art holdings because it seems that possibly he was over leveraged Uh, he wouldn't probably confirm that but that seems to be the general opinion and uh, this this work uh, was offered in this sealed bid auction for a minimum of 90 million And to a large extent, I think Sotheby's is sort of having its cake and eating it here because they have trumpeted this as being a very high price and a very beautiful work of art. They've said that it's going to sell for so much, but they're not telling us how much it sold for. All we know is that it did apparently sell. I would conclude that it probably made, well, obviously that it had to make uh, its estimate, which was in excess of 90 million. And I would conclude that it sold for 90 million but it's a very curious way of proceeding because it's not entirely a private sale since we knew it was for sale and how much it was for but at the same time we don't know how much it sold for right so i mean this is a really curious development isn't it because for years and you've written about this a hell of a lot there have been calls for the art market to increase its transparency so we're getting to the crux of our conversation now which is 
which is what is the art market doing about transparency and is it making any progress towards transparency? And certainly this would indicate absolutely not. So it's really interesting because at the same time, the uh, pandemic has made some aspects of the art market more transparent, and that's a good thing. But in some ways, there are other elements that have made it less transparent. So it's very difficult. I can't say yes or no to that question. You know, it's sort of in between. So let's start with the less transparent. One of the things that did give us some information about auction houses was when Sotheby's was still a publicly quoted company, and every quarter we would have a quarterly report as required by um, the Securities and Exchange Commission in America. And you did know, for example, of the level guarantees. Uh, and we did know if they were in profit or not in profit. But Sotheby's was bought by, um, as we know, by a, a French entrepreneur, Drahi. And since then, he's taken it private. So we have the only thing they will report is that they will report their sales yearly. Uh, Christie's is the same. Uh, Christie's was, has been a private company for many years. And as we know, also belongs to a French um, luxury goods mogul, Francois Pinault. So already... That what's going on in these two major auction houses is less transparent than before, at least uh, more opaque, shall we say. And I think that the, the, the fact that everything online is actually making things much more difficult because when you still had a printed catalogue, you had a record of what was put up for sale. You actually had it on a printed page. But now that for reasons that are good for sustainability, these catalogues have pretty well disappeared. Only a few are printed for very favourite clients. Everything's online. So if something, the estimate changes or if it's withdrawn for sale, withdrawn from sale or doesn't sell, it can just disappear off your screen. And it's as if it never existed. And this is really problematic because, for example, you have people, appraisers, for example, whose job is to establish the value of works of art, and they're missing more and more information. So I, I think that this, this is a real problem. Um, and it's also possible uh, when everything's online. I mean, even uh, even bidding on something, you think you've you've bought it, but then maybe they can something can happen, and that another bidder can come in after you've thought you've bought it. Uh, whereas, of course, in a public auction, when there's an audience, you can see the hammer falls, bang, and it's sold to somebody. Isn't it within the the auction house's interest that there is a there is a level of public information, but in order to inspire confidence in the bidders because surely if there is more confusion might that discourage people from bidding at higher levels for instance um i think that the problem is that as it's all online and it's no longer a public auction uh the possibility of shall we say massaging the situation is is stronger in general, not only in the auction houses, you know, you can make things disappear. And so shall we come on now to what I see as the pluses of, of the pandemic is that with online viewing rooms, prices are much more likely to be put by galleries. Uh, so that price transparency is actually better. Um, and in fact, it's quite interesting because last uh, week I did a conversation with Claire McAndrew, the arts economist, and she's done research amongst um, high net worth individuals and a huge majority of them like to see prices. And people like Artsy online platforms have said that when prices are put up, the chances of selling something are much greater. 
so I think this is a good side of the pandemic. We've all gone online, and to a large extent, prices are much more uh, are much more likely to be seen. However. When something, for example, in an online viewing room is sold, that price will also disappear, will tend to disappear. Now, there's a question to be asked. Why is it that prices in the art market aren't fixed? You know, why is it that, that a price disappears when something's sold? And the answer is, of course, that a price isn't a price. It all depends. The gallery's role is to promote their artists and get their works into good collections preferably public institutions like museums or into a good private collection. So they will give very, very generous terms, huge discounts in order to get a work of art into a collection. But of course they can't put that out publicly because then everybody who wants to buy that work will say, well, why can't I have 25% discount as well? So that is the reason why there is this opacity around Pisces. Do you have any indication of whether the most favourable discounts are always to museums, but or would there be certain private collectors who would have as favourable terms as museums? Oh, definitely. Uh, you would have uh, favourable terms for, for good collectors as well, because it's prestigious. Uh, it's good to say back in the day, if you sold to Charles Saatchi, uh, that was prestigious. It went into a, somebody who was building up a, a very good collection. And I think you would say the same for some of the major collectors of today. Patrizia Sandretto, perhaps, you know, she's a well-known, excellent collector. And it obviously would enhance the um, the reputation of an artist if if they got that that support either institutional support or support from a, a, a well known and well reputed collection. Now, one of the things that's interesting to me is that I've noticed, of course, when it's when you have an art fair or a um, a public viewing room, just generally, of course, if works sell, then the dealers can then put different works up, and again, the, the same phenomenon you were talking about with auction catalogues, those previous works would disappear and those prices would then disappear too so again there's a sort of there's an there's a difficulty with fixing how much the market value of works of art is on on any serious level right because because yes. the deal the dealer can shift and shift as much as they like yes absolutely and and the fact that it's all online just just makes it worse right and so if if a new collector comes onto the market and wants to buy works of art and they see that the, the sort of it's normally a, um, a, a range of prices right so you, you will see a, a, a work of art and, and it might say 150 to 200,000 yes. for instance so uh, uh, somebody who was a, a sort of a novice collector as it were what confidence could they have that they were not being charged a price that was astronomically more than a museum and, and, and a, a top private collector would? First of all, I don't think that novice collectors, I mean, it's quite rare for novice collectors to come in at, at quite a high level. They generally sort of work their way up. Um, and at the lower level, prices are given and that the, that the spread is not so enormous. I mean, I do think that a spread sort of from one to three million, that's an enormous amount. And I think actually that a fi a putting prices is actually very encouraging for the young collector because... Uh, Firstly, it's humiliating to ask about the price of something you then 
turns out you can't afford. And it gives them an idea. And one would hope that young collectors would also be looking, uh, you know, would be reading about it and looking. But they also, all these online viewing rooms, there's the possibility of dialoguing with the art dealer. So I think at that point, you know, they would be able to home in on exactly what the, the prices are. But I think anybody who wants to collect really, you know, would benefit from doing their homework and then, you know, discussing the prices and seeing and looking, perhaps looking at there's lots and lots of sites that give art prices. So having a look and seeing how much other works by the same artist are making. I'd like to go back to seal bids and the whole notion of public auctions and activities by auction houses which are not public. So just first off, I can't figure out why you'd want to do a seal bid when you could have a either a public auction or just a private sale without seal bids, because surely the possibility of getting more money for that work uh, is higher if you don't have the seal bids, because then there becomes a process of bidding and, and which which would be an organic process whereas with the seal bids that's it right you don't they don't escalate there's a well-known commentator on the art market and financial affairs called felix salmon and he in a public forum because it was in dialogue with another user on twitter uh, there was this they floated this idea that perhaps there were some legal constraints around this because the work of art might have been given as collateral for a loan and it was being resold and so this might have been and it's purely speculative. This might have been the reason why it was sent into this very curious, uh, opaque situation that it was sent in for sealed bids. The other reason, of course, is that this is a very high-priced work of art. This year, with the pandemic, there haven't really been prices at this level, and perhaps there was a certain amount of nervousness of putting it up for public auction and doing what's called burning it. Burning is when something doesn't find a buyer and then, of course, becomes impossible to resale uh, for probably a number of years afterwards. So obviously the sealed bid uh, auction gets around that because we don't know the outcome of the sale. Well, it's a fascinating subject. Georgina, thank you for coming on and talking to us about it. Thank you for having me. You can read all the latest news on the Baltimore Museum of Art controversy and the Sotheby's auction at theartnewspaper.com or on our free app for iOS, which you can download at the App Store. To have Georgina Adams' monthly Art Market column delivered direct to your email inbox, subscribe to our monthly newsletter, Art Market Eye, on the website. We'll talk Turner at Tate Britain soon, but first, here are some of the top news stories on the website this week. The second pandemic lockdown is with us in Europe. In Germany, where new coronavirus restrictions begin on the 2nd of November and apply until the end of the month, museums are awaiting further clarity from the 16 German states on whether they're included in a ban on leisure facilities. In Belgium, museums in the Brussels region were ordered to close until the 19th of November. Italy and Spain have also introduced new lockdown measures, but museums in both countries remain open for now, as do museums in the UK. But, as Catherine Hickley reports, the French government has ordered museums to close. The Louvre has said it will not reopen before the 1st of December. Meanwhile, the Congolese activist Emery Mwazulu Diabanza has been arrested in Paris for attempting to seize a colonial-era artefact from the Louvre. He said the act was an attempt, quote, to take back what was stolen and plundered from us. 
The Tate has suspended the curator of its version of the Philip Guston Now exhibition after he publicly criticised the gallery's decision, made with three US museums, to postpone the show, as Christina Ruiz reports. In September, Mark Godfrey posted a lengthy statement on his Instagram account which called the decision, quote, extremely patronising to viewers who were assumed not to be able to appreciate the nuance and politics of Guston's works. The National Gallery of Art in Washington DC this week told the New York Times that the Guston exhibition would be delayed until 2022, not 2024, as initially stated. And finally, more withdrawn auction lots. Sotheby's sales of 190 artefacts and 68 timepieces from the collection of Jerusalem's Museum for Islamic Art, scheduled in London this week, were postponed at the 11th hour at the request of the museum's parent foundation. As Karen Chernick writes, the move follows mounting public and government pressure in Israel to prevent the deaccessioning of more than 3% of the publicly funded institution's collection, which is unique in the country for its focus on Islamic culture. You can read these stories and much more at theartnewspaper.com or on the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This autumn, Christie's presents important Chinese art, bringing exceptional pieces of important provenance spanning three millennia of Chinese civilization. Highlights include a group of archaic jade carvings, formerly in the collection of Baron and Baroness von Erzsen, and signed Yi Qing works dating to the early Qing dynasty. Alongside this, a strong focus on Buddhist works of art features an important inscribed tanker depicting four lamas in Tibet, among others. Works are on view from the 30th of October to the 2nd of November at Christie's in London. Entry is free and it's open to all. Find out more on christies.com. Welcome back. Before we explore Turner's modern world, a reminder that you can catch up with the art newspaper's other podcast, A Brush With, with in-depth artist interviews. Do subscribe if you'd like to hear new episodes in the coming weeks. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon or wherever you're listening. Now, this week, a major exhibition, Turner's Modern World, opened at Tate Britain, the latest in the gallery's regular explorations of J.M.W. Turner, arguably Britain's most popular historical artist, by whom Tate Britain has a collection of thousands of works. The show travels to Fort Worth and Boston in the US next year. I went to Tate Britain to talk to David Blaney-Brown, the show's curator. David, I'd like to begin by asking about Turner's position vis-à-vis the present and the past, because it seems to me that there have been shows, for instance, like Turner and the Masters, where he clearly wanted to situate himself in a in a lineage with artists of the past and, and, and was constantly looking to the past. But this show shows him very much a man of his own times. So can you explain a bit about his attitude to time? Turner's attitude to time, very interesting question because I think he saw time as something that was linear, but the past as something that never really went away. It lives on in the present and helps to condition the way we think about things and the way we experience things. But uh, at the same time, it's very important to be an artist living in the present. And... All the while that Turner was painting contemporary subjects, at the same time he was also painting historical ones, and sometimes in his historical subjects or pictures, or ones that are ostensibly historical, he will introduce little pointers and hints and clues that relate to present times, 
or present politics or present ideas. Um, and again, uh, often when he's painting something that appears to be contemporary, he kind of looks over his shoulder to the past. And again, sometimes, um, and of course, the, you know, a picture like The Fighting Temeraire, or indeed Rain, Steam and Speed, which look at each other across one room in, in the current exhibition, Turner's Modern World, those are uh, pictures about transition and the kind of slippage of movement of one age into another, because, of course, in the Temeraire, uh, a modern steam tug is towing um, a great warship that had fought at Trafalgar and had been built in the 18th century, hand-built from oak, um, not from modern materials like iron and driven by sail rather than by steam, um, being towed to the breaker's yard by a steamboat. So, in a way, the past is slipping into the future. And, you know, we could argue forever about whether that picture is an elegy for, for past times or a celebration of the new or both. And there is this kind of coexistence between past and present and this, this movement of the steamer across the canvas seems almost, in a way, to point to the future as well. And then, you know, in the sky there's a sunset, but the moon is also rising. And so time is a fluid thing. It's, all, it, it's always moving. Nothing stays put for long or, or forever. And in Rain, Steam and Speed, we have the onset of the train that's sort of, you know, for Turner's generation, hurtling towards us and seeming to burst out of the picture. It's actually probably only going about 50 or 60 miles an hour. But, um, you know, for people who've been used to walking on foot or horse-drawn travel, that was, you know, incredible. Um, but at the same time, uh, at the opposite angle to that in, in the picture, there is the old road bridge that, that, that crossed the Thames before it was superseded by Brunel's railway bridge for the, for the Great Western Railway. So I think time for Turner was a very slippery thing, and he lived both in the past and in the present. His position on these things is also slippery as well, in terms of like contemporary events, for instance. You can't nail down whether he is a radical or a reactionary, can you? And is that, do you think that's a deliberate thing? Did he deliberately position himself as a man for, for everyone? I think it's very important for an artist of that generation, you know, who had to, um, who had to find patrons, who had to appeal to collectors and of course you know when Turner was growing up the people who bought pictures were mostly people with old money they were uh, you know people they were the landed gentry or the nobility who'd inherited estates inherited collections collections primarily of course of old masters in many cases so there he was as a modern artist you know competing with the artists of the past and appealing to people whose taste was as much about um, you know historic art as it was contemporary art but uh, over time um, that kind of generation of aristocratic collectors rather died off and the, the, the people with the real money and the collecting interests were industrialists, they were merchants, they were, in that horrible phrase, new money. And their politics, their ideas were often very different. But I think at no point would it have been a very good idea for an artist like Turner to attach himself too obviously or dogmatically to any one, any one political position. 
And we don't know, you know, if he voted in elections, it's hard to say, you know, what he, what he would have voted. And, you know, if one reads all the, the sort of end, vast literature on Turner, you know, he's been described as anything but a sort of traditional Shire's Tory, you know, uh, to a radical old man. And, and um, I, in fact, he, I think he's a bit of everything. I mean, I think he had a kind of a very conservative side to him in some ways, but, um, uh, you know, the, the term radical, of course, meant different things anyway in those days. You know, we, we, we think about radicalism now as being left-wing, but I think the concept of left or right wing would have been completely alien to, to Turner and his generation. There were people with progressive ideas, with broadly liberal or humanitarian ideas, and I think it's pretty obvious looking at the, at the sort of tendency in Turner's work across his life that he was increasingly, he, he situated himself in that camp. But I think it's more about, you know, morals and ethics and, and hu- humanitarian ideas than it's, than it's specifically about politics. And, you know, he was just as happy to work for, um, uh, you know, when he was illustrating books and, and engaging with contemporary authors. He's just as happy to you know, have Byron, who was, you know, a liberal progressive, as his favourite poet. He was commissioned by Thomas Campbell, you know, another liberally inclined, progressively inclined poet, Samuel Rogers, the same, but also for Walter Scott, who was really quite conservative and certainly a sort of old-fashioned establishment Tory. And so I think, you know, party politics isn't, isn't really the issue for Turner. It's more about social advancement. It's about giving a voice in his art to ordinary people, which is very strongly felt in a lot of his pictures of of Britain, for example. You know, the figures you see are far more often working people than they are the nobility or royalty. Do you think that, I mean, Ruskin, we always see Turner to to a certain extent through the prism of Ruskin's conceptions of him. Would that empathy that he clearly has, you can detect it in, in the work right from the start of the show, for working people, have come from the fact that, as Ruskin's noted, he was from Covent Garden, he was not from the aristocracy, he, he came from a, a working family? I think that background that Turner had, you know, the son of a London barber, uh, brought up in a, a sort of almost a kind of rookery in, 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 in Covent Garden, you know, and a, a sort of childhood bedroom up in the attic where there was no room to work and surrounded by sort of um, smoky chimneys and that sort of thing. And then, of course, Covent Garden right near the market. I think that must have played a part, certainly. But, of course, also, you know, Covent Garden was very near the London theatres where there were spectacular uh, performances on the stage. He could have walked to the Strand, then a very elegant street, you know, the sort of Bond Street of its day, uh, and the Royal Academy where he started studying at the age of 14. He could have been there in, um, you know, less than 10 minutes' walk from Covent Garden. So I think, I mean, there's a wonderful passage at the end of Ruskin's book, Modern Painters, where he compares... Turner's boyhood in sort of messy London uh, with Giorgione's in Venice, which of course is a city of water and light and no filthy traffic and no horses and no untidiness. And, and it's a typical sort of Ruskin riff. The problem with Ruskin when he writes about Turner, wonderful as what he writes always is as prose, he invents his own Turner. And sometimes he may hit the jackpot, he may hit the spot, but other times it's fantasy. You know, I mean, I, I think we, we always have to take 
um, Ruskin with a, a, a few grains of salt. But I think there may be something there, yes. I mean, if Turner had been born in the country like Constable was, he would probably have been a completely different artist. There was something, I think, about growing up in the middle of London within a short walking distance of really quite rough streets because although Covent Garden had been a sort of elegant area uh, in the late 17th century, it had very much deteriorated by the time Turner was growing up in it. You know, that was the market. It was also sort of a place of brothels and rather sort of rowdy pubs and all-night drinking dens and things like that. It was the kind of Soho, um, you know, the sort of mid-20th century Soho of the late 19th century. And then, of course, within a further few minutes' walk, he'd have been down by the river, down by the docks, in the days when ships and sailors came right up into the heart of the city. And so there were, were all these impressions playing on his mind. Whereas, of course, for Constable, it was um, a relatively unchanging, managed, but nevertheless pastoral landscape that probably didn't look that different uh, when Constable was growing up in it to what it would have looked 50 or more years before. But, you know, growing up in the middle of London like Turner did, everything was constantly changing, constantly moving. Buildings were being torn down, rebuilt. So, and, and that must have made an impression on him, must have done. You mentioned the Royal Academy there. Um, was it the done thing for artists like Turner, who of course was part of the Royal Academy from very early on, to reflect contemporary culture, to respond to contemporary events? Because obviously, was it still in the shadow of, of Reynolds's conceptions of what, what artists should be at that time? There were certainly artists who did paint, um, you know, contemporary life, contemporary incident. I mean, you know, if we go back to Hogarth, for example, you know, who uh, was having something of a revival when Turner was growing up. Um, and uh, there were artists like um, de Lotherberg who painted a range of contemporary subjects, but he also painted history and mythology and all kinds of other things. And I don't think at the Academy it wasn't recommended that artists painted um, contemporary subjects because apart from anything else that would have been regarded as rather a sort of low low down in the hierarchy a bit like portraiture you know if, you, if you're if you're painting a portrait you're painting a single actual person you're not painting a history picture and if you're painting a history picture you're painting something that has some kind of universal um, timeless value whereas if you're painting a contemporary incident you know, it may be here today and gone tomorrow. And therefore, the pressure on, on young artists was much more to, you know, to read ancient history, to read literature, to um, read the Bible, um, and to find their subjects for, um, if they wanted to be subject painters rather than landscape painters. And of course, landscape was much further down the hierarchy as well, not go out of their front door and paint what they saw around them. Um, and so I think Turner was quite unusual in the extent to which he started doing that even when very young. By and large, I think the Academy was still much more oriented towards you know, high art, towards um, grand subject pictures. One of the things that really I found tremendously compelling in the catalogue and the show is the attention to detail that Turner brings to his subjects. There's this wonderful 
um, sketches that he made on the victory, the great uh, ship from the Battle of Trafalgar. He was almost journalistic in his attention to detail, wasn't he? You know, going on board and talking to people, talking to survivors. Very important for Turner that wherever he could, he, if he wanted to paint upon the subject, that he should research it if not on the spot, because obviously he wasn't in the middle of the Battle of Trafalgar, but, you know, he could do the next best thing, which was go and see the victory when she came back to Sheerness for repairs and get on board before uh, the surviving crew and marines and so on were still on board before they'd you know, gone off on shore leave. So, um, it, you know, he could interview them, he could, he could collect information about the ship and about the battle from them and you know we show the little sketchbook that he he used on board the victory at the time and i wouldn't be at all surprised if some of the sketches in it not perhaps the one that we're showing because it's very much a sort of a, a drawn composition but some of the things which are for instance um plans of the um you know the the, the placing of the ships um uh, during the battle and little sort of snippets of data about you know what was going on i wouldn't be surprised if they had actually been written straight in the sketchbook by some of the men he talked to uh, rather than him kind of taking down notes from them because it would have been quicker that way and you know when he when he decided to paint waterloo you know it was three years after the battle by then but you could already take tours of waterloo with guides and he he did one and took notes and so wherever he could he would research things on the spot or as near to the spot as he could get so wherever he could he would collect on the spot info and he wanted i think to produce pictures that were more plausible and more like actual records than for instance you know napoleon's artists in paris were doing because what they were doing was painting propaganda um, for Napoleon. Turner wasn't a propagandist. He didn't paint pictures as, as propaganda. But nor would it, I think, be true to say that they are just the equivalent of photojournalism either because, you know, he, he's always working these subjects through in his imagination and bringing an artist's eye to bear on what he's painting. And, of course, sometimes, coming back to what we were talking about earlier, about you know, the relationship of the past to the present. Sometimes he'll use a historic subject or a historic incident, like you know, Hannibal's passage across the Alps to invade Italy back in antiquity during the Punic Wars. Um, he'll use that as a way of reflecting on um, current events, on Napoleon's campaigns, for example. So, you know, very few of his pictures are literal. They're not as affected as I think some of contemporary French painters were because, of course, they had to serve the Napoleonic agenda. But there's nothing tells you that more clearly than the, the painting of Waterloo. And I just wondered, you know, the, the, the scene of Waterloo is an almost apocalyptic scene. This is by no means a nationalist celebration of Britain's victory. So how did that go down in its time? I mean, would that have been a controversial thing to have done? 
Well, when Turner went to Waterloo, he had he had with him guidebooks, um, but he'd also been reading the third canto of Byron's *Child Harold's Pilgrimage*, which has a long passage about Waterloo. You know, it it, it leads up to Waterloo. It describes the Duchess of Richmond's ball in Brussels on the evening before the battle, and then the battle itself, and the carnage after it. And it has in it that amazing line, you know, friend, foe in one red burial blent. And that's what Turner paints in that picture, essentially. You know, he doesn't paint the battle because he wasn't there, he didn't see it. What he does paint or imagine um, is the aftermath. But the, the, what we see are the dead, uh, or perhaps the dying, uh, the mortally wounded, laid out in their thousands on the field as they were afterwards that night. And uh, in the foreground, some women who have come to search among uh, the bodies because, you know, it seems a strange thing to do, but it was quite common in those days for, you know, sisters or wives or girlfriends to follow their men and they're looking for them among these piles of dead and it's, it's a horrendous picture. And it wasn't the done thing at all to present you know, sort of genteel exhibition audiences in London with that kind of horror, you know. If you painted battles, you distance yourself from them. If you look at the, the pictures of naval battles, for example, you know, there are lots of cannon going off and exploding ships and so on, but you, you're not actually on the deck with all the blood and the smashed up bodies and the maimed figures and the people who've been decapitated or whatever. Um, but in Waterloo, you just see this, this horror spread out. It's really powerful. Let's move on now to another scene of carnage. And it's still to this day, even, you know, nearly 200 years after it's painted, the work Slavers is among Turner's most genuinely horrific images. And you couldn't borrow it for this exhibition because it's too fragile. But you've chosen to exhibit a copy in the show because it speaks to his you talked about his humanitarian and and more liberal views as he grew older and that that speaks to that doesn't it that picture uh yes it does i mean um it is um a a profoundly terrible and tragic picture of course because you know what we see are uh, we see a slave ship in the background a storm is coming up uh and uh, the captain of that ship has ditched, has thrown overboard um, a large number of slaves, uh, enslaved people, uh, who are drowning or they are being torn apart by sharks. I mean, you could hardly imagine a more awful subject. And then there's this kind of bloodshot sky in the background and the, the sea is getting rough and... All of this, of course, Turner had to imagine. I mean, this is not anything that he could paint from personal experience or even written experience because uh, that kind of horror, of course, by and large, was not described and it was deliberately kept from people. What Turner could have referred to, of course, were um, accounts that were beginning to appear in the press um, about um, earlier incidents uh, of that kind, which was still going on, even though the slave trade had been outlawed uh, in in Britain much earlier. And then, of course, later on, there was a move to extend that ban um, internationally. And Turner painted that picture in the same year as the International Anti-Slavery Convention um, was held in London. And it was opened by um, Prince Albert with his first public speech um, 
in Britain, having married Queen Victoria um, quite recently, in which, you know, um, Albert said that we must do everything we can to extend this ban and this horror to the whole world. So was Turner's painting an illustration? Was it, was it as close to propaganda as he came in terms of... Was it, did he connect it directly to the cause, in other words? I think he did, yes. But I don't... I mean, it, it's, it's not propaganda as such. I think it's a kind of... A, it's, a, it's, a, it's a campaigning image. Um, and um, it must have been painted to draw attention to, uh, to the, the work that was on, ongoing to stop this. Most people think that the uh, the thing that is is principally represented there but not the only thing um, was the um, the Zong incident which went right back to uh, 1781 when uh, the captain of a, a Liverpool slave ship had jettisoned um, sick and dying slaves because you know in his, his terms they could not be traded and um, he couldn't claim insurance for them, and that had come to trial uh, in 1783, and as part of the later campaigns, that terrible sort of incident was brought to the fore again, along with many others. It's a collective meditation on the horrors of the slave trade. It doesn't take away from the fact that Britain was, for much of the 18th century, one of the leading, if not the leading, slave trading nation which was very much on its conscience. Um, let's talk about his relationship with industry, with steam, with new developments in technological developments. Because on the one hand, he evokes a kind of terrible power, sublime power and steam and smoke and lots of things that we now look at and feel a bit uncomfortable with, frankly. But also, he's clearly absolutely loving it, right? I think Turner loved steam, and I mean, Constable said Turner painted with tinted steam, um, and almost as if what he's depicting became the medium it, itself. I mean, Turner loved atmosphere, didn't he? I mean, you know, he, he, his, his, his paintings are all about atmosphere and how light sort of passes in and out of it, or how sometimes the, at, the atmosphere itself turns dark, and he must have thought what atmosphere meant, but I think you know, he was thinking about it in largely visual terms. I mean, you know, people wonder nowadays whether he had any idea that um, the, the red sunsets that he loved to paint, for example, you know, were partly the product of the interaction of, of carbon pollution with, with atmosphere. But, I mean, I think he certainly knew scientists quite well, but scientists were not really very much aware of that at the time. I mean, people were... You know, there, there was a there was a there was a um, a government investigation into um, airborne pollution um, in in Britain in the, the late 1820s, for example. But I think you know people were not thinking beyond the fact that well, you know, it kind of makes the sky dark today, or it makes us cough. They weren't thinking about any long-term consequences. They weren't thinking. Um, they think you know it might change the the effect on a particular day but not that it would wreck the climate um, for the future. Um, and for every person who was concerned about darkening skies, uh, there were another three who thought they were exciting. I mean, you know, some, some people thought that the sort of, you know, haze and filth and sort of canopy of smoke 
um, over London at the time was actually a demonstration of its sort of supreme power and energy and that it was, it was something sublime, um, not something that was ultimately going to kill us. I think Turner was fascinated by industry. I don't think he... Did he ask himself if it was a good or a bad thing? I don't know. I mean, he, he was excited, I think, by it as, as a visible manifestation of change. And he certainly loved, you know, he loved his steamboats, otherwise why would he paint them so often? And he must have enjoyed the fact that he could jump on board one at London Bridge and be down at Margate, or he could jump on a boat at Brighton and be across the Channel in a, in a few hours instead of taking days to get where he wanted to go. He must have loved that, being the traveller that he, that he was. Um, and, uh, of course, you know, I mean... Rain, Steam and Speed is, it's certainly the first, you know, serious exhibition picture of a train ever painted. It's probably not literally the first depiction of a train uh, of a railway engine ever made, but it's certainly the first appearance of a railway engine in a serious work of art. And, um, you know, why would he have done that if he wasn't, you know, tremendously excited by it? You bring up that, that painting and you mentioned the Fighting Temeraire earlier on. I wanted to just, in, in, the, in a way, at the end, just celebrate Turner's brilliance. Because in that room, you've got rain, steam and speed. You've got snowstorm, steamboat off a harbour's mouth. You've got the Fighting Temeraire. It's an absolutely stonking room of brilliant paintings. And I think that one of, you know, one of the things that, that, that's wonderful about Turner is, however we frame him, whichever angle we take on him one always comes away just astonished by what a genius of painting he is. Can you say something about that? Well, I, I mean, it's wonderful to hear you say that because that was what we, one of the things we were hoping that would come across. It wasn't just a history lesson. It wasn't just painted equivalents of sort of photojournalism recording uh, new things that were happening. Everything is um, transformed and filtered through his um, extraordinary artistic imagination. And what he's painting, these, these new things, which involve, you know, faster movement, for example, or something that, you know, completely changes the way we see things because it affects the atmosphere, requires a new way of painting. Somebody said the other day, was Turner an Enlightenment artist or was he a Romantic I mean, he was both, surely, and he was both a man of the 18th century. He was born, after all, in 1775. He became a Victorian. He began as a, an English artist. You know, then he became European, and I think if he'd been younger and able to travel more widely, he would have traveled more widely than he did. His worldview is extraordinarily expansive, and it ends up completely changing the way, the way in which he painted. And that all comes together. I think in in his late style because you know the way he paints needs to catch up with what he's painting it needs to be dynamic it needs to be alive it needs to be constantly changing in front of our eyes and even his finished pictures from the late stage never really look completely resolved as you as you look at them they seem to continue growing and they seem to have the potential to continue in one's imagination becoming becoming something else as, of course, the world was when Turner was alive in it.
Well, David, thank you so much for telling us about the show. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Turner's Modern World is at Tate Britain in London until the 7th of March next year. It then travels to the Kimball Museum of Art in Fort Worth, Texas in May and the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston in October. Now it's time for the work of the week. The artist John Stezica has a new show in London and an accompanying book exploring his early works. John's chosen to focus on Christ and the woman taken in adultery, a small panel painting in Grisaille by Peter Bruegel the Elder, made in 1565. The work's normally in the Courtauld Collection in London and was in fact stolen from the Courtauld Gallery in 1982 before being recovered ten years later. But with the Courtauld closed for renovation, it's currently on loan to the National Gallery in London and it's there that John came across it. You can see an image of it at theartnewspaper.com, go to the podcast tab and search for this episode. John, you've chosen to talk about a Bruegel, which is currently on display at the National Gallery and is from the Courtauld Collection. Tell us about it. Well, I was surprised to find it in the National Gallery because I, I'm a bit of a fan of Bruegel's work and I've even lectured on the subject of Bruegel at the Royal College in the past. Um, I did a series called Looking Down on the World, so I, I really was surprised that I hadn't ever seen it. And then I realised why, because it, was, it had gone missing from the Courtauld Gallery at exactly the time that I would have been interested in the 80s to 90s. And so it, it was quite staggering to suddenly see it. I just totally arrested me. I've been going to the National Gallery ever since I was a student on a regular, you know, maybe once a week basis. And usually I'm going because there's something that I've seen that I need to look at again. And on the penultimate visit to the National Gallery, I saw this painting and it just took me completely, I don't know, it totally arrested me. So of course that meant I had to go back the following week to find out what it was that arrested me about it, you know. And that, it turns out that was the last visit I did to the National Gallery before lockdown. And I still haven't answered that question. I think I've got a few more visits before I get anywhere near that. But I do actually, I've got a particular fondness for Grisaille, because Grisaille is a kind of pe- form of painting that isn't, doesn't look like painting. It looks a bit like stone or carving or something else. So it's like rendering the world already through another medium. There's that feeling of layeredness in it, which I like about Grisaille. I mean, the cloth of Jesus and the Pharisees on the on the on the left almost feels like it was it's been it's bas relief, you know, like it's stone rather than cloth. And I love those kind of metamorphoses between substances: cloth, stone, paint, drawing, you know, whatever. I, I know of one other Grisaille by Bruegel, but I didn't know that particular one. And it is quite a strange painting. Let's try and probe it then. Maybe I mean one of the, one one of the things that I'm really interested in about this work, and I you know I completely agree with that sort of sculptural or certainly relief effect that it has, but also there's a, it's it's got a wonderful sense of space, and you know the, the space of the painting is so interesting. I wonder if you could say something about about that that spatial kind of complexity. Yeah, I think that's what really fascinates me. The way often in Grisaille paintings you get that sort of unfolding of space, almost as though space is, is a series of folds. Um, and I love the way that it ends with that dense blackness of the, of the, of the crowd, that it's almost as though the visible is, dis- is, is on the threshold of disappearing into that. And of course you know the story, that that dense crowd that's actually imprisoning the potential victim of 
stoning, the adulteress, is one that's going to disappear because of Jesus' words as written in the dust below. Of course, I love that juxtaposition too, writing in the dust, uh, which is a very contemporary, you know, like a transient communication set against what the Pharisees represent, which is the, the word embodied in stone, the tablets of Moses, thou shalt not, etc. Uh, so you know that in the end it's just going to be Jesus and the adulteress, and then there'll be no one. The, the stage will clear. But I think the other thing about that space is the one, everything in spatial representation is, is tonal. So you're starting with the lighter tones going into this darkness as you look into the painting, except one thing, which is the rim of that kind of step that occurs in between the two, which, of course, is symbolically the threshold between the everyday world, the world of us, and the world of the, of the, of the temple, the priest. And that one line, which kind of repeats the stick held by, by somebody, I, I thought it was by the Pharisee, but it's not. If you look carefully, it's by what looks like could be the departing other adulterer um, who's turned away and escaping to try and merge with the crowd to not draw attention to himself. But it's the, that, that line, and of course there's a second line, isn't there? There's a line of her, the, the, the... I keep thinking of her as a virgin, because in a way she is also the, the Virgin Mary too. The finger pointing downwards at right angles to the stick. These three things seem very crucial to me. I don't know quite how, but... A lot of the things that you're talking about, it seems to me are, are completely in common with your own work, in the, t in the sense of the angle that... The, for instance, in the mask series, the angle that the postcard merges or hits the photographic portrait. So, and 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 I know you've talked talked about that sort of liminal moment where you where you where where the two things come together and 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 are somehow inseparable. And I wonder about these the way that uh, those that connection leads you through the space. And and what Bruegel's doing here is is making some very significant geometric kind of um, uh, kind of decisions which which lead the viewer into the work and become immersed in become immersed in it. What first hit me about this painting was how unusual it was. I mean, I know that people describe Bruegel's painting as Italianate, and this being on this particular bit, very close up, very unusual. But then, of course, at the end of his life, the blind leading the blind, which is a repetition of the stumbling Christ in a way, um, has a similar. Um, close-up quality, which is unusual for his work. But it struck me that it was very like a film still. I felt, uh, because it's black and white as well, uh, it's, it, it has the same composition that one would expect in, in a, an early film still, 1930s or 40s film still, the kind I tend to prefer in my work. So yes, I felt, felt immediately a connection, strangely, bet between it and my work. And of course, I do have a fascination for black and white as well. So tell us about, about Bruegel. You said you've taught, taught Bruegel. What is it that draws you to him so much? I did a series at the Royal College called Looking Down on the World, and I was just interested in the Northern European, sometimes referred to as Ikean's perspective, as the vantage point drifted upwards from the, the human level that's characteristic of Italian painting to one that was somehow slightly above. And then, of course, it became quite extreme with... Bruegel's Towers of Babel and then and Bosch as well, of course. And I was curious as to what that 
distance involved. And of course, my own third-person archive pieces with the tiny little figures derives from that perspective. I've always been fascinated, really, by what happens when you see something at a distance. When you see a figure walking on the hill way away and you can't tell even what sex they are or anything about them, there is a kind of bond, an empathy that you feel with that person as purely a human being, which is often destroyed by proximity. When you get to know who they are, what kind of class they are, what sort of person they are, somehow that empathy disappears. And I've, that empathy to me is, is, is something, uh, it seems to me something about the key to art itself, a kind of a way of feeling a, a proximity to people in general, to everyone, to humanity, that I think art does, only art does that. Communication doesn't do that. Communication divides us. It tells us information, but it doesn't give us that bond. So I suppose that's why stories are so important. That's fantastic. I mean, are you at all religious? I mean, I'm always interested when when people choose a religious picture about about whether they have some residual feeling of you know whether it, it communicates to them on a spiritual level. That's a difficult question to answer. Some, somebody of my age as well, because in some ways life tends to go in a sort of circle on these things. I was not brought up in a religious family, but it happened that I went to a school that was very religious. So we went to, to church every day. Uh, as part of the school curriculum, we started assembly in in church, and I used to go to Sunday school. So I went to church twice on Sundays. So I was incredibly religious as a, a young teenager, and then I fell out with religion as a, an older teenager and became very extremely the opposite. I became a Marxist, in fact, and so <laughs> you couldn't get more opposite. But I have always, throughout my life, found myself wandering into churches. And I think there is something to say about that. People, I mean, especially of my age, who have been brought up with a religious background of some kind, I think still have an unconscious yearning for that space and for whatever it represented. I mean, to be honest, it gives me the creeps at the actual services. I can't bear them. I mean, the moment I hear plain song, for example, on Radio 3, which I listen to incessantly, the moment that comes on, I have to switch it off because I just, it, I just can't bear it. But on the other hand, there's something that really is very attractive. Yes, and I think there is... I, I believe that art is fundamentally connected with the sacred, yes. And I think it's our way of dealing with the sacred in a secular culture. So do you feel any closer to understanding your fascination no, with this picture no, that we've talked about? No, lockdown is terribly irritating on that basis <laughs> because normally that's what I do, you see. Whenever I go to the National Gallery, I always go with, with one painting to look at and it's usually the one that's that's a mystery to me for years and years it's been the baptism but um which i've been going to since i was about 18 um but uh in recent years it's been a number of different things but always i, I go to look at that and i never find the answers that i'm looking for ever but there's usually another painting that i see on the way peripherally you know <laughs> that think ah and that's what that's the one that has the path i've got a great belief in in instantaneous consumption of art i don't like to sit down there for hours dwelling on things you know and it's usually something i see tangentially and actually if i do come to focus on it, it often ruins it for me it probably just needs that edge you know that sort of liminal quality to, to have an effect on me and that's I, I have to say that's what i use the national gallery for mostly i get all my inspiration from there really
Well, John, thanks so much for talking to us about this amazing work. And thank you very much for hosting me. At the edge of pictures, John Stezica, works 1975 to 1990, is at Luxembourg & Co. in London until the 5th of December. The accompanying book is published by Walter Koenig and is €30. Euros. You can find out more about the Bruegel at courtold.ac.uk. And that's it for this episode. You can subscribe to The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com, click on the subscribe link at the top left of the page and you'll find a range of subscriptions. Do subscribe to this podcast and a brush with if you haven't already done so and please give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. You can also find us on Twitter at Town Audio and on Facebook and Instagram of course. The Week in Art is produced by Julie Mihalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack and David is also the editor and sound designer. Thanks to Georgina, to David and to John and thank you for listening. We'll see you next week when we'll be responding to the US election results. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.